Hello and welcome to Tell Us Your Effin' Story, a podcast by franchisors for franchisors, where we get to chat to some of the interesting people in the franchising sector and find out their backstory. I'm your host, Bruce McFarland, my co-host, John Sully, and today we've got Tanya Robinson, the CEO of BDC Partners. Welcome. Tanya. John. Tell us your fucking story. John, John, John. <laughs> it's not, it's your franchising story. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yes, I think that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, my franchising story. Okay. By Tanya. Yeah, by Tanya, exactly. Um, look, my franchising story goes back, uh, as, as I often say, more years than I'm actually going to admit to. Um, but my original story, I began franchising as a nitwit. A so, nitwit. I was a uh, certified nitwit. And I moved from being trained and as a nitwit to becoming their uh, international training manager and got other franchisees to become nitwits as well. We might take it even back further. Yeah, let's go So back. let's go right back. Right so, back. Okay. so where did you grow up? Okay, so I'm a country girl, grew up in Ballarat um, and um, went to Ballarat High and then was going to be a high school teacher teaching history and geography. They were the things that really? I was really passionate about. Um but my dad also graduated from primary school teaching the same year I graduated from high school. So my poor mum had me in one room and dad in the other, both studying. Um, so you can imagine how stressful that was for her. Um, so we, we didn't have a whole lot of money. So I decided I was going to work for a year, get some money, got accepted into Monash and then decided I'd go work for a year and kind of never went back to university. <laughs> kind of liked the money, liked the working, um, started in a franchise called Nitwit in Ballarat. Um, so that's how I became that. So I graduated from working behind the counter um, and, and went from there. But yeah, I'm one of four, uh, eldest, which my siblings say is very obvious. I'm the bossy <laughs> one of the group. <laughs> um, and all my family are pretty much back in Ballarat now. My, we all left, spent time overseas, traveling, working, whatever. Um, my, my, my brothers and sisters are all back in Ballarat and mum and dad are still back in Ballarat as well. And yeah, it's good. So good your background. dad was a teacher? My dad a... was a teacher. So my dad was one of 13. Good Catholic boy, yes. good Catholic family rather. Um, and so when he was old enough, he went straight to, to work. So he was a postie at 13 or he worked in the post office. So, And he you know, did all sorts of things there and then um, they changed the whole way it was going to work and he was going to have to do um, shift work, which he didn't want to do. He had four kids. He was very involved in sport and athletics um, and very involved with what we did with that and that was going to impact that. So he decided that... Um, He'd become a teacher, which when I think and about how, it now, was he would have been 40, in his 40s, four Jeez. kids. Wow. Gee, that's unusual back was then. Was really Absolutely. unusual Major back then. career change, yeah. So we remember having to, I, mum and I had to uh, teach him things around maths and that just to get through. He, he got, obviously got in as a mature age student. Um, but yeah, he had four kids. Um, mum didn't work because that was the old school way of doing it then. So um, so yeah, he went back to, to school, St Aquinas College in Ballarat. And uh, yeah, he I graduated from high school and he graduated from primary school teaching. So was so. he still working when... Nope, he couldn't work in those days. So he did part-time work. He loved photography, so he was one that did. He did the races. He did the dogs. He did. Um, he coached kids in, in athletics. Not that he got paid for that, but that was part of it. But he did all sorts of odd jobs. Mum did a bit of sewing, uh, all of that sort of stuff, just to kind of keep us keep going the through all, the, door. all yep. the walls from the door. Yep. Um, they owned their home. They were the old school of you know. They bought. They're still in their original house in Ballarat. Um, so yeah. Yeah, they and it was it's funny as you grow up but 
you know, it's just what you do. But when I look back on that now, I think, wow, that was gutsy. Mm. It really Absolutely. was. Absolutely. And didn't, didn't impact us one way or the other, but you really do have a whole new appreciation as you get older as to what that actually meant. So, yeah. so And did he yeah. love it when he, he started it. doing it? He loved it. So he was fortunate enough that he got, um, because at one stage he looked like he was going to have to leave Ballarat to get a job, but Mm. he got um, in two schools in Ballarat and then by the time he left he was principal of three small regional Catholic schools around Ballarat. So he taught for for 20 plus years in the end um, and retired in his mid-60s. and yeah, loved it, loved it. Didn't didn't like the politics towards the end of it, you know, trying to manage three small schools with, mm. you know, not a lot of money and parents and parent teachers and, and you know, he was he was a rarity as a fem as a male teacher anyway. They was they weren't that so lots of things he said he he doubts he could do it now with the restrictions around a lot of that. But he had a ball. And he's still it's still funny, we still go to Ballarat and people still call him Mr. Robbie, you know, all Mr. their kids, then their kid, yeah, all of that sort of stuff. And no, he, lo- he loved it and he, he would have been really, he was really good at it. And, but again, he was in those circumstances when he first, when he left, when he was old enough to work, you know, my grandparents were, you know, lived in the commission homes in Ballarat. They, um, there was no money there. Yeah. And so they, um, so, you know, he had to go to work. So all as did all of his siblings. He's the second eldest. So yeah. and oh God, your family reunion with thirteen in that family. Oh, there's a lot there of us when we like, get going. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> represent yeah. half the population of Australia. <laughs> we, yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, we have lost a couple um, of dad siblings since that time. But yeah, lots of cousins and lots of things. So we 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 tend to get together every couple of years. So and we've got one or two that are typically the ones that organise it, and yeah. we all just show up and say, "Hey, great to see everyone." But yeah, it's a lot of fun. Some of them, you know. Now got kids, and some of them are also starting to have grandkids. Of my of the cousins, yep. I was the eldest girl, and my um, and Glenn, who was the eldest boy, unfortunately, we lost him last year in the middle of COVID, which was mm. hard. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of us around the place. Let me tell you. And did hmm. your mum work? You, you said she no. was doing. No, she just did or... did a little bit of sewing, a little bit of all that sort of stuff. But dad was old school, um, and um, yeah. Mum, mum, he wouldn't have gone and done teaching if mum had had to go back to work. That wouldn't have been something he, he would have felt comfortable with. But they worked in in every other way. So they, you know, they, we, as I said, we never never felt that there wasn't enough to go around. But it was, you know, things were tight. When you look back on it, things were tight. Mm. Absolutely. So. And did, did they give you any crap when you when you went uh, took a year off and? <laughs> Went and worked at um, Nitwits. No, they were. I think they were disappointed because I would have been the first to go to uni. And so there was that. There was that element of pride around that. But they mm. kind of got why. And I, I was also young. I, I'd, I'd actually. I was only seventeen when I finished high school. So I'd gone early in primary school, and and so I was always that sort of year and a half, almost younger than most people. So I think they were quite comfortable with me hanging around. They were ultimately disappointed with. Um, in not going, um, but ultimately, you know, the role I stepped into was training and teaching anyway. So whilst mm. it wasn't history and geography, mm. um, I certainly got to see a lot of the world with that particular role. So yeah, which was so great. they don't introduce you as our great disappointment. Or anything <laughs> like that. No, no, no. I think I think uh, if um, you know, at, at one stage, you know, being the oldest, there was there was pressure around the grandkid thing. You know, when are you going to multiply? Um, multiply. Yeah. Um, and I was Catholics I was a late bloomer. Well. Yeah. I didn't get I was I didn't get married yeah. until I was in my fifties. So you know I was yeah. I was never going to be that one. Luckily yeah. enough, my my siblings have been able to um, have grandchildren. So they're feeling very comfortable with that now. So uh, yeah. that's very cool. <laughs> and what about what you were 
you know, everyone was working in your family at mm-hmm. young age. Did you yeah. before you uh, had your full time job? What sort of stuff did you do when you're at school? Oh, uh, school. So I was um, uh, fish and chips. Yeah, retail. The road, yeah. Retail. Didn't can't say I liked that very much. I didn't last very long in the fish and chip shop. Too hot, and I kept burning myself. So you know, was a bit of a princess in that respect. Um, McDonald's, you know, hey. did all that because there was McDonald's was quite big in Ballarat. It had just started in Ballarat yep. as such. Um, Coles, I was a yep. checkout chick for a while, um, and. Um, yeah, and just you know, babysitting, you know, all the yep. normal things that you did when you were, were younger to get money, so to speak. But yeah, retail's always been where I've kind of played, yep. which I've always enjoyed. So I think, yeah, respect and, that. And so Nitwits was a franchise when you went there? Yeah, Nitwits yep. was a franchise. So it was a, the Australia franchise was a master franchise um, yep. from Canada. So there was a woman out of Canada that had started the, the franchise and it was teaching people how to sew with knitted fabric. So stretch fabric, jumpers, T-shirts, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and Vera Randall, who was the Australian master, master franchisor, she had been in Canada, seen it in Canada and brought it back to Australia. And Lorraine and Wally Shand um, were the franchisees of Ballarat at Ballarat. Um, Wally was into Greyhounds. I still remember that very well. <laughs> and Lorraine. So I worked for them as their full-time uh, retail person initially. Um, they had uh, a woman by the name of Deirdre uh, who has unfortunately no longer with us either but was an exceptionally close friend for about 30 years or so. She and her husband John had moved to Ballarat. He worked at John Vales. He was uh, um, there. So she'd moved down and she'd done a course at Newcastle. So, you know, the whole way the small world works. So Nitwit was opening. Um, she moved in uh, and went, ah, oh, I'm experienced. So she uh, uh, started working there and was um, uh, was the, the trainer. So women, that we would run classes. We'd do probably seven or eight classes a week. So you'd do a, a morning class, you'd do an evening class. You would get 25-odd women coming to learn how to sew. In each class? In each class. Holy Average crap. sale was probably about $70, which was a lot of money in those days. Yeah, when the was 80s, this? It's 80s, 80s, yeah. And, was, and they were, it was a six- to eight-week course. So you would buy patterns, you would buy fabric, you would make something... Um, each week you'd bring it in and you'd make something through. So they were fantastic classes. But they were also in the days where women didn't do a lot of work. Clothing Mm. was very expensive because there were tariffs on everything. Um, And so it was just the perfect franchise for the time. And then... Uh, so I, I graduated to from being, you know, just working behind the counter to actually being a trainer. So I went and did the course, as I said, hence why I was a qualified nitwit. <laughs> My high school teacher who taught me te- sewing thought it was hysterical because I was really bad at sewing um, <laughs> at high school. So, but learned how to do that and became became a teacher. So I was doing the, the classes. Um, Deirdre and John moved back to Sydney because that's where they were from. And John, oh, sorry, John had moved into another role. And I decided that I wanted to travel. So in a, this was when I was 21-ish. And so at that stage, Nitwit had just sold the Master Franchise, or Australia had just sold the Master Franchise to the UK. So me being me, typed off a letter, or f- typed a letter and then um, made a phone call and said, hey, you know, I'm thinking of travelling. It'd be great if you could put me in contact with the franchisor over there because, you know, they might want help when I get there. Anyway, I got a call to say, well, actually, <laughs> how do you feel like going and working with us over there? So within three months of that, I was on a plane to the UK. 
Um, That was harder with mum and dad than actually anything else, to be honest, because I was the first that had travelled and I literally, I had to get a passport, I had to do all that. Luckily enough, my mum's uh, Scottish, so I got what was then called a certificate of entitlement to the right to abode. Uh, And that's literally what it was called, that I had to get into my passport so I could work over there with no no dramas. and yeah, I, I got on a plane and and went With to the a UK. Vision of for how long did you say to mum and dad? Well, initially it was a year. I'm only going for a week. Yeah, no, <laughs> oh, no, no, it was always going to be a year. So I needed we need because we needed to get the franchise established and and go from there. So I lived in a place called Cranley, which is South England, South of England, um, and um, we opened seven stores over there at the time. I had a little yellow mini that I used to drive around in, which was really cool because, A, the roads were really bad and really slippery in the winter. And the number of times I hit ice and just kind of slid off the road, <laughs> which was very fine in a mini. Nothing else much. Um, and, we yeah, we built up, up the brand from there. Um, and then so I came back almost two years after that. So they then um, – so the person that had started it decided that they – wanted to sell it so we stayed a little bit longer to help them with that Mm. um and I probably still would have stayed with them but I hadn't been home for 18 months and then there was no such thing as Facebook and mobile phones or any of that stuff to easily so I was missing the the folks um and said look I just want to go home for a couple of weeks and they, they made the call that that didn't suit them so I went okay fine thanks See you later. Um, so then moved back in. So from there, moved in back to went to Sydney because that's where the head office was, mm-hmm. and spent another three or four years with them there, and became their international traveller. So I was I was a seriously spoiled brat for a number of years. We had stores. I went in Israel, Papua New Guinea, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, New Zealand, and I got to play wow. with all of those places and, and you all those franchises. set them all up. Some of them were already set up and some of them, yeah, we were there just to um, actually um, make sure they were still following the systems and getting used to the different country regulations. And let me tell you, you know, Israel was always an interesting one to visit. <laughs> so, mm. um, yeah, UK was fairly straightforward, but uh, New Zealand was cool. Canada was great. Um, Canada in particular came from two franchisees who had uh, relocated from Israel to to Canada, so they right. took the brand over. over so there. how how were they picking their franchisees then? Were they? I mean, what? there was no science behind it. It was <laughs> they were women. Um, they were pe- in a lot of cases it, it grew organically because women had done the classes and decided that they would like to do it. Um, New Guinea was an expat who had done classes that took it to there. New Zealand was someone that had seen something and did it. The UK was the same thing. And as I said, from I'm not sure actually how Israel started, to be honest, but the franchisees that took it to Canada were people that had done the courses in Israel. And it was so. a shop. It was a shop. It was a retail shop. It sold fabric. Sold stretch fabrics. Right. And, and a training room out the training back. Training room out the back. Yep. Yep. So where is that now? It must have been a bloody big retailer in its time. It was a very big retailer in its time, but it's probably a cautionary tale of not reading the trends quick enough. And it just it there's one there is literally one store. It's and it's not a fran- the franchise itself doesn't exist anymore. But there's a store in Cottesloe uh, of WA. Uh, another South African lady, funnily enough, that had come over that's still called Knitwit, um, and trades as Knitwit, and you can buy online all their fabrics and things, which I occasionally do because I still 
I took sewing back up again through COVID, funnily enough. I hadn't done it for ages and needed to do something else. So I'm, I'm back doing a bit of sewing, which I'm actually really enjoying. It's a good creative outlet. Yeah. Was there a secret handshake or anything if you're a nitwit? Oh, there was a little bit. We had certificates. Right. And our uh, colour code was green and purple. That was the colours wow. of the brand. Now I look at that now and think, oh my God. Well, that's Wimbledon. It's Wimbledon. It's only the idea of green and purple. But yeah. yet it started in Canada, so I'm not sure where the colours mm. came from. But yeah, it was. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, um, yeah, look, tariffs changed. Women started going back to work, so there wasn't mm. the demand for, for classes. So all of that thing. One of the things Vera did look at. Um, which was well ahead of its time, was and we set up a shop in Westfield and Parramatta, so just mm-hmm. and the new one, so we're relocated from where it used to be on the river, um, where David Jones used to be there, and we relocated in there. And what you could do is you'd have templates of clothing, you could come and get fitted, and it would be tailor-made to fit you. Um, concept was brilliant. Uh, unfortunately, very expensive to do. And it's interesting, um, as and I don't know if it's a male thing necessarily, but as a female thing, if I go in and I buy a suit or uh, or tailored or something in a shop and it doesn't quite fit, you kind of put up with that because you, you're buying it ready-made and you can put a belt in and or you can throw a shoulder pad in or whatever. But when you tell someone you're going to make them something that will fit them, uh, it takes on a whole other level. So the way of managing that was just, it became too hard. You could never, we had more people bringing stuff back because a hem was uh, half a centimetre not right or the mm. waistband didn't sit as quite as well as they did. So unfortunately, um, I a number of people, you could see the writing on the wall. I'd been with them for 13, almost 14 years by that stage, living in Sydney. Um, and Sydney was, I was only going for a year and 10 years later I came back to Melbourne. Um, and Sydney and was an interesting one when you're travelling for three quarters of the year, which I was in those days, you don't get to meet a whole lot of social connections. Mm. So it was all work-related. So coming back to Melbourne, family, friend, more friends down here. Um, and so I, I left there, went and worked for uh, Brass and Things. Can I just roll back a step? Because we touched on a business that missed the change in the market, which obviously we've had some pretty big stories, the Kodaks. There's some big stories around that very successful businesses yeah, the BlackBerry. <laughs> yeah, <a> BlackBerry. Yeah, <laughs> I love yeah. my BlackBerry. Yeah. Actually, I really, I really did. Work? Like, they... I think oh. they're around. I'm not sure, but yeah, I, I, I thought my BlackBerry was yeah. very cool. Well, lots of business. Yeah. So, mm. do you think you know you were you were there at the start of the decline of mm-hmm. that? You could see like yeah. it was obviously it gone mm-hmm. gangbusters for years. Yeah. Do you think there was there anything that you could see at the time going? You know, I I think it 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 wasn't recognised or it wasn't recognised by the people that could make the decisions is probably more to the point. Um, it was, look, as a, f- a first job, um, it was probably one of the best I ever had in in the sense of the it was female-focused. Um, there were very few men that worked in the business um, and Vera was very much around looking after people, but she wasn't a particularly strong businesswoman. So in hindsight, you know, when I look back, so she had lots of mistakes were made, lots of decisions were made to, instead of trimming back and, and really looking what we were doing, it was making sure thing. And again, it's a catch-22 because you want to protect people, but some harder decisions should have been made around, um, you know, not necessarily putting new franchisees on. There was a couple of those that came in late, which probably in hindsight we shouldn't have done. Um, and um, making sure that 
a lot more time was spent on the business side of it as opposed to the creative side of it. And So tell us about Gloria Jean because that was going crazy at the time as well, yeah, so the so, growth. Yeah, so Gloria Jean's, I started with them. So I'd moved back to Melbourne by that stage. I'd, I'd spent some time with Jag Clothing um, and okay. worked with them, which was fun, and a whole different style of, of, of working again. Um, so I worked with, um, so yeah, so Gloria Jeans, I started as an operations manager here in Victoria. So we were just in the process of building new stores and getting franchisees ready for the brand, which was a lot of fun. And then they, because of the growth, they then decided that they needed a uh, training manager to oversee uh, Queen, not Queensland, sorry, um, WA, South Australia, Victoria and Taz. So I took on the, the, the training role for that. So I trained all the franchisees. I can make a half-decent cup of coffee, probably a little bit rusty now, but on the bigger machines, but used to do that. And we also then taught the whole, uh, you know, the business side, the health and safety. Not a whole lot of focus at the start on the business stuff, but that changed as the brand grew. Um and then, so I did spend a lot of time with them on that one and then moved, uh, my final role with them was National Franchising Manager based in Melbourne. So I looked after... When was that, Tanny? Was that like 2000s or late 90s? Yeah, late 90s. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So it was in, so Peter and Nabi had started the business mm-hmm. um, and... Um, yeah, again, I remember my final interview with Nabi. So anyone that joined the, the company in those days had to have a final interview with Nabi. And, you know, I had all sorts of questions around, um, you know, was I married? All, all that stuff that you just couldn't mm, ever ask now. Highly appropriate. <laughs> but it turned out he knew Vera. So oh. it, in, in the small, again, world that we move in. Um, so, you know, because Vera was involved in that and also involved with, a uh, probably still is, a charity called Hab- Habitat for Humanity, which um, Gloria Jeans were as well. But it was interesting with Gloria Jeans. Like, they, whilst they made no secret of the fact that they were heavily involved in the church, there was never any pressure to be involved, if that makes sense. Um, you know, they, and I was in Melbourne, which also helped, I think. I spent a lot of time going backwards and forwards from Sydney. And again, in this, the weird world that we work in, the head offices of Gloria Jean's Coffee were literally one street across from where the head offices of Nitwit used to be, <laughs> out at Castle Hill. It was yep. just, as I'm driving out, I'm going, this looks so familiar. <laughs> and I've come around the corner and went, oh my God, <laughs> this is so familiar. It was Living literally next door. there and there. It was, yeah. it was really interesting um but again that they were another like if they you know i was there at their heyday yeah they did a they lot of things right a lot of things right they really did um the reality of in now is that um we, we actually whilst we opened a lot of stores in melbourne melbourne was a tougher market because you know we we're a bit snobby in melbourne around our coffee and we didn't necessarily like brands we thought that they were a little bit beneath us um so we had some failures you know the chapel streets and the ligon streets just didn't work because people even though coffee Mm. was okay they didn't like it didn't want to be seen in it but we did very well in shopping centers and what have you but ultimately the cost of doing business with those models just became too hard wages cost of food cost of rent um and again we didn't move quick enough um they tried to put frozen stuff in they tried to do all sorts of things and look i i had left by then um and um went and played with a slightly smaller brand at that stage but uh they again you could see the writing on the wall with it and they, they're just they're too labor intensive to make yep. it really work they do really well in eastern europe funnily enough um one of the a girl that I worked with in um, Australia was an, is an Irish girl and she went back to Ireland with her family and had, has been working with them up until probably a year ago uh, in their Eastern European arm and they're doing particularly well over there because 
everything's that just that bit cheaper to work with. But again, with Gloria Jeans, once Peter and Narby stepped away, RFG, of course, that was well before me. I, I, I'm clarifying that. I was not there when that happened. They, um, it, it changed dramatically. Yeah, Peter and Narby were, again, very hands-on, as most original franchisors are. You know, it's their baby. It's who they are. They know the franchisees. They want to make sure the franchisees are successful. Nah, Peter stepped away first, so he sold to, to Narby, uh, and then Narby ultimately sold to RFG. And I know... Well, I don't know because I wasn't there, but the word on the street was he struggled in that last 12 months because he could see what was coming and what was happening, but he wasn't really able to influence too much with it. It is really interesting the, the tr- how the passion of the founding franchisors or the, or the people that grow the brand, mm-hmm. how it can or can't translate into yeah. larger businesses. And yeah. I, an example mm-hmm. that I, you know, I've, I've seen quite closely is, is Boost and Janine's mm-hmm. been able to, to maintain it even though she has less of a role. Yeah. Um, obviously the passion but you know a couple mm. of different private equity owners yeah. um, and they've been able to continue to grow the business um, during that but both of you have been involved in businesses that have declined since they've been owned by a large group so um, well, if it all become, if it ultimately, and again, observations, because I wasn't involved with any of, well, nitwit to a point, and it's not quite the same, but certainly with Gloria Jane's, the minute the dollars and cents become the most important focus of the business, then you ultimately lose over. the franchisee. That's And that's because I, you know, funnily enough, still keep in contact or, or have, you know, people that used to, I used to try, I trained to be franchisees at Gloria Jeans. One of them came and worked with me at Sigma for a while. Um, and another one uh, at Stud Park, I used to bump into her a lot, always go in and say hello to Lyndall. And their biggest thing was that people stopped listening. And it wasn't even that they, there was no, you know, we used to joke about it and say, guys, we're going to listen, but we're still going to do what we need, think's right for the brand. They said, yeah, oh yeah, but at least we know you're hearing what we're saying. And there's often some tweaks made along the way to kind of work in different brands. But the minute that that stopped, basically, when the RFGs or and a lot of what you hear at what happens in private equity, it all becomes about the balance sheet as opposed to mm-hmm. the people that direct the balance sheet. And yep. that's the, that, to me, is what I've seen as, as the biggest difference because balance sheets are one thing, but if you haven't got people to believe in the brand anymore, you've got nothing. Yep, very true. Michelle's was, that was criminal, what happened to that business. Yeah. You know, when we sold it to RFG, it was 360-odd stores, and now it's 40 or 50. Yeah, yeah. And I, we even looked at Gloria Jeans at the numbers, mm-hmm. <clears throat> pardon me, after we'd sold Michelle's, and they were really struggling. There was 40% of the stores there that I think were not contributing yeah. at all. It yeah. was, It was tough. Yeah. And yeah. I agree 100%. As soon as you, your eyes go on to your P&L mm-hmm. or your balance sheet, whatever, and off the franchisee, then you shouldn't be a franchisor. No. Yeah. So do you think some of those businesses like Gloria Jean, sounds like the, the, the success of the franchisees was such a key part of it on the growth story? And mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's the loyalty built to the original franchisor because... A lot of those, you know, one of, the, I think one of the main reasons anyone gets into franchising is that they want their own, to be their own business owner. They don't genuinely feel they can do it themselves. So they're looking for someone that they can trust or believe in or that can help them. 
and there's so much of that relationship between franchisor and franchisee, particularly in those early days, because they've given people an opportunity. They've allowed them to send their kids to the private school that they always wanted to, or build a home, or whatever. And it's and it scales, obviously, depending on whether you're buying a you know a small service franchise or a large you know Gloria Jeans that was six seven hundred thousand dollars in those days to get into. But they had a connection with them because they genuinely believed that the franchisor had helped them achieve the dreams that they wanted. And even when, you know, Peter and Nabi were that little step removed because, you know, we then had, you know, Neil and who was our CEO and you know, I was the national franchise manager. So I was the one that, that ultimately they saw um, before anybody else did. But they still felt that because we believed in the brand, there was still that connection from that. Um, and, you know, it's hard. You, you you say no to as many people as you say yes to when they come in, if you're doing it correctly. I'll clarify that. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, not everyone's suited for it. I had this conversation with someone over dinner on Saturday night who was really getting up my nose around, oh, franchising's terrible. You know, Michelle's patisserie brought up Michelle's. And I went, yeah, you don't even know the story. Don't get me started. <laughs> um, be, and I said, besides which, you would, he said, I'd never be a franchisee. And I went, hmm. Actually, we would never have you as a franchisee. I said, you're an entrepreneur. I would not want you anywhere near a franchise. Yeah. I said, you would be more trouble than you're worth. So it's about understanding. And again, there were, like all franchises, there were just, you know, there were some franchisees that were chosen that shouldn't have been there. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a big challenge for us in towards the end of my time at Gloria Jeans because there was a lot of um, migrants coming in, particularly Chinese at that stage, who English was not only not their second language, but it probably wasn't even their third language. So a number of them, you know, they just weren't going to um, succeed because they couldn't communicate. They, you know, they might have had, you know, and then I you know, also had some that said, oh, you know, something about coffee. Oh, I don't like coffee. So you're don't buying a coffee it. franchise yeah. for what reason? <laughs> oh, it's going to make me money. Mm, no, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, I might come back to to Brazilian butterfly, but probably mm-hmm. just because yeah. of the what you were just talking about with oh. the the immigrants. Like you've, yeah. you've been part of another very successful franchise in Seven Eleven. Mm-hmm. So yep. again, family owned business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know they did a lot for their franchisees. Probably one of the most diverse, particularly when you were there the first oh, time yeah. around. Diverse mm-hmm. franchisee mix going around, but mm-hmm. it seemed to work for them, and they grew really quickly. I'm gonna. This is first time round. <laughs> first time round, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, look, it did, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did you find your experience there and, you know, what was what was going well? What was making so them what was so going successful? well again? Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I was there first time around 2010-12 um, and 2010-7-11 bought mobile. So we literally jumped 250 stores overnight. So that was a lot of stores. I remember I'd been with them, I think, about two months at the time and I remember driving around in Melbourne with little cupcakes to the, all the mobile stores saying, welcome to 7-Eleven, we weren't greeted very well. They did not want to be part of 7-Eleven, <laughs> most of the French, the managers, because a change is always scary and, you know, they always thought they were the best ones. And, you know, a couple, we did have to have a couple of what I affectionately call come-to-Jesus meetings with a few of them that just said, mate, it's not that good and if you don't want to be here, fine. It's your turn to, to exit. Or if you do, however, this is now how we do it. Um, so, yeah, we, we grew overnight. Um and I, I often said to people during that time, if you ever wanted to plot Australia's immigration policy, you could do it through 7-Eleven franchisees because the early franchisees, which was in the 70s when 7-Eleven first came, was opened, was sort of Australian Greek. Uh, and then it moved into um, Egyptian 
and then it moved into Chinese, and now we've you know, then you've got Indian, you've got Pakistan, you've got Sri Lankan, you've got a whole mix of, of people, and it's um, and you know it really different way, and it's I'm sort of jumping a bit now to when I came back, but one of the things I did when I came back as as their national franchising manager because I was an operations manager when I was there the first time. Again, most of the franchisees, it was a really tight system. You know, they, we, we're what we call a high-touch franchise, so they didn't do anything without us knowing about it. And, you know, there was a games that were played. You know, franchisees would always try and do take a little bit more than they were entitled to, and we would always have the conversation around, you can't do that, and this is how you bring it back. But there was always that done respect, respectfully. We never went in heavy-handed. We, we certainly, um, you know punished a few franchisees for want of a better term because they were just doing the wrong thing um and um but at the same time they kind of respected us for that because if we didn't they would just keep doing the wrong thing and it would become a bit fun but the difference in those days as well was that Russell Withers was in stores every quarter I remember doing tours with him just scare the heck out of us, quite frankly. So I had a team of seven um, area managers under me, or district managers as they were called in those days, and we would get the notice that next week Russell's coming out to your world and this we're coming to your store. So, you know, frantic rush to get the stores cleaned and tidied, more than they would normally be, and all the systems, and you'd have... We had a van and we'd put Russell in the van and we'd have our district managers of stores and around we go. But the franchisees loved it. Because and they it was always Mr. Withers, they were always respectful. Uh, our franchisees did love a title, so anyone that had a title was the one that they felt they were more respectful to and just loved it. Um, but it was just it was it was a fun brand to be in. It was it was hard. It's a tough business, twenty four hours a day, seven days mm. a week, and nothing good ever happens at three o'clock in the morning. Um, so our district managers in particular worked really hard because they were on call. So if, if something happened at three o'clock in the morning, they yeah. they got the call. Tough old gig. Yeah. And if it ever came to me, they had better have a damn good reason why they didn't pick up the phone. <laughs> and I did get those calls. I mean, and you'd go down to check it out and you know, and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, there are not nice people around at that hour of the night most times. Not I'm probably jumping ahead a little bit, but did you like that model? Did you like the fact that they and I don't know a lot about that business, but from what I understand in some cases they even guaranteed the profit. But so that you mm-hmm. knew that there was a there was yep. a flaw yep. to it, but they controlled nearly everything, everything else. Yeah. The profit only we really only guaranteed the profit though if there were like if there were um, you know roadworks out the front of your store and you oh, did, weren't okay. going to get sales. We did that certainly through COVID as well with a lot of our stores. Um, so we're, I like that model personally. Um, there are certainly downsides to it, particularly as a franchisor, because you cover you know the shop fits were ours. All the expenses of setting up the store was ours, but when it came to sell, we didn't get the GP. Uh, we didn't get the um, the uh, what am I the trying to say? The upside capital, gain, capital yeah. gain. The franchisee did. But the thing with a profit share model is that if the franchisor does something and it doesn't work, it hits both of you. Mm. <laughs> so it's not just the franchisee. Whereas with a um, a percentage model. If it's just purely on your sales, but you've cut out their margins to within an inch of their life, then the franchisor isn't really losing anything, but it's definitely hurting the franchisee. So mm. there's got to be the balance. So there's there's good and bad with it, but I did I saw it work really well with that. The biggest challenge was the wages piece, as we know, and we yep. can come to that later. But um, 
or avoid it like the plague. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think we can avoid it because it's yeah. it, it it's it was out there and and yep. it, um, the brand internally changed a lot. Uh, Russell Withers isn't anywhere near involved in the brand as he was, even though franchisees love it. But he deliberately stepped away because he was technically associated with that, even though he, you know, it wasn't him that was running the business at the time. But um, but overall, it was, and it's it's interesting with our franchisees. As I said, when I came back the second time, I came in as their national franchising manager, so we needed to have a look at what could look like in our brand. We hadn't done it for a while, and. Our, I would say, and again, I have, can't measure it accurately, but our franchisees are some of the most highly educated franchisees out there. They've got mm. master's degrees. They've got all sorts of things. These are university graduates who have come to Australia, not necessarily to own a 7-Eleven, but because they've, they've wanted to better themselves from where they were. They've come into corporate Australia and, and they've absolutely met a ceiling. You know, there's been that block that they're never going to be the CEO or whatever. So they've decided to become franchisees and then they put their kids through some of them are more than happy for their kids to be franchisees majority of them want them to be doctors and lawyers and all the other things with it so Mm. it's um you know they they talked about the the poor franchisee being you know uneducated not the case for the majority of our 7-eleven franchisees highly educated so coming back into the business Mm -hmm. you obviously were um, out of the business during yep. the whole mm-hmm. when the shit hit the fan. Oh, yeah. It so <laughs> certainly was. How was it yeah. for you, you know, because I know you had a lot of friends at the business yeah. and to see that and then to get back into it. Yeah. Oh, look, it was hard to see because, yes, I still had a lot of friends in the business and that were still there and they absolutely took a lot of it. The, my team that I came, when I came back into the brand, the team that I had to um, in the other stuff had been through it all and they – they were taking it really hard because they were, you know, they were attacked personally by a lot of people as it was your fault. You know, you're the franchise person that sold me the brand, all of that. So there was a lot of um, a lot of people that were feeling very fragile when we first came in. The interesting thing, however, was, and again, I wasn't there, but when when the scandal first hit, with the first three months after that, the numbers of inquiries that 7-Eleven had for franchisees went through the roof. Now, I have no idea what that says about people. (laughs) I will leave that to other people to judge. But the inquiry rate went through the roof. What what hindered everything was that the banks decided that we were not somebody they wanted to be involved with, so they stopped lending money. So we didn't sell franchises for nearly 12 months, not because people didn't want them, but because people couldn't get finance, which I find really interesting because, of course, you know, the code of the banking inquiry didn't exactly paint them as the uh, exactly. shining lights of, of uh, corporate citizenship either but um, but that was the that was the biggest challenge with that so and and look Angus and the team that came in um, you know they did a, they've done a lot of work to really reset the things so the the salary pieces are you know it, it's impossible well I shouldn't say impossible because people will always try and do it and we've still got franchisees that they're terminating because they're still doing the wrong thing unfortunately that's just the way it works and that you know seven out on their own in that respect there's always franchisees that think they can play the system but they've done, they did a lot of work to tidy all that up and brought new people in um, really tidied up the whole process around um, how the how wages were recorded we now have cameras in every store which is not a breach of privacy because it doesn't go into stores it goes behind counters so we can actually see who's in stores and what have you but there was there still was an element of of particularly in my area of we watched out we, we did 
they did everything by the book anyway as far as the code. They were never, ever found to have done anything wrong around the franchising code 711. It was done to the letter and that continued to, to be there. Where we started to be really tight was around the finances because one of the things that impacted, when you go back to 2010 12, a lot of the stores that came on board were purchased by existing franchisees. Because in the early days, 7-Eleven had a, had a policy that if it was a new store or a greenfield site, it wouldn't go to a brand new franchisee. It would always be offered to an existing franchisee because they are complicated businesses mm-hmm. to run 7-Eleven. Yep. And greenfields, for those of you who know, greenfields can be very hit and miss. You can believe that you have the best site out there, but it can take three years sometimes for it to actually get to its full potential. Um, and while 7-Eleven would certainly work out with the franchisee, if there weren't sales there, it was always found it was easier or tended to run better if a franchisee had experience. So so all of a sudden, some of our franchisees had eight or nine stores, and it turns out it's too many. So in the period that I was there, we were winding that back. The the minimum now is you, you can have two minimum. And if you have three, you have to be authorised by the CEO to, to get your third store. So when time came up for renewal, we just weren't renewing. They were, And they knew that. You know, some of them fought it, but they all knew it. And um, we've really tightened that whole process up now because, you know, they some of them actually, you know, overcommitted themselves. So that's where they, they reverted back to doing the wrong thing. The other thing we've had, particularly in migrant families, is that families like to contribute to the the um, the store and whilst it was always asked is this a gift or is this you know to that no no it's not Both a gift it's part of that but you know we we found in some cases you know they would be getting you know three four hundred grand from the family and two years later all of a sudden their debt had jumped by two or three hundred grand because they're now going to pay the family back so that impacts so we tightened up you know um Fifty percent is the maximum we'll allow anyone to let, to borrow to come into a Seven Eleven, and Seven Elevens are anything from you know four hundred grand to over a million, depending on the brand, on the store itself. Uh, we had a fantastic relationship with the banks. That was part of that was most of my job, if the truth be known, was making sure. And you know, so they knew they would ring me and say, "Hey, I've had such and such call me to say you've said they can borrow seventy. And I went, uh, "A, I don't even know who you're talking about because they're not approved yet." And B, no. Um, so you know, all of that sort of stuff came came through. So yeah, you had a period, I guess, if the banks aren't lending. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't bring any new blood into the network. No, that's so right. You, so they're all stuck. Yeah. So you have and to that work was the other them. thing. Yeah, that's they right. couldn't sell. Yeah. So if they wanted to get out or you wanted to terminate them, you had mm-hmm. to either buy them back. Yeah. It was the only option, really. That's you, right. You're stuck with everyone. Yeah. But and we there, there was three stores sold, but Sam Eleven helped finance, but they were to existing staff um, that were already working for us. So they put in a, a plan around lending them a certain amount of money with the view that thirty um, three years after that, hopefully there was enough equity in the brand, in, in the store for them to borrow and then pay out 7-Eleven. And that actually worked in all. In fact, there were five stores that worked in all five. They all came to sort of uh, maturation when I was there. So but it's not an, ideal, but It's yeah. an interesting point because there, I remember uh, early COVID, we did a webinar, I think, with the banks. Was it early mm-hmm. COVID or middle of COVID? just one big blur um and the banks and they all came on that that webinar and there was one thing that they were saying consistently throughout that is that they the franchisors do not work closely enough Mm -hmm. with the banks yep so they don't have an understanding of the business and that's 
you know, I know that's something that at Michelle's we did very, very well. We had a relationship with the bank. We understand that they have risk levels that they'll lend up to, you know, 30 or 50% of that chain. Yeah. So you need at the very least two financiers that are going to help you to get into it. And and more specifically, they should have probably four or five. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really has seems to have disappeared over the last three, four, five years, even yeah. longer probably. And I actually I don't understand it because even when I was with Seven Eleven, not Seven Eleven, sorry, Gloria Jane's Coffees um, down in in Melbourne, we, the office we had was with the NAB, and I would meet physically go up to the floor to meet with them mm. because it was rolling over. They could tell me we've we've only got enough, you know. You've got one more store you can borrow from us, so and that so that was going back, you know, eighties, nineties. Yep. So it it's just critical. If if and, and I, you talk to people, like, oh, but I don't want to, and it's like, well, then you can't expect them to borrow exactly. to lend you money. It's just if your brand isn't going to stack up against a bank, then you shouldn't be franchising. Yep. You're in, in really black yep. and white terms, and often the banks will be able to. Again, when COVID hit at Seven Eleven. You know, no one, none of us knew what was going on with that. And, and again, we had probably a month where all inquiries sort of stopped and then we had a couple of stores that were on the cusp of selling and everyone kind of went, oh, hang on, why don't we just take a breath? Again, I was on the phone with the banks They and then pretty much within a month we were back almost business as usual. The hardest thing in the sales part was actually, particularly in Victoria, um, was to actually get into stores. <laughs> so, mm. you know, we had so many restrictions around it. But the rest of the country, for, for certainly the first year, uh, it was almost business as usual. We were able to. It was just we just had to work around a few things. And, you know, one of the, the strengths of a brand like a Seven Eleven or a lot of franchises is that for the first time ever we shut stores in the CBD because, for those of you who remember, we had mm-hmm. curfews and... You did not want people in your store on the streets at that time, unfortunately. Mm. Um, you know, we had franchisees. I was there one night doing a, a, a thing. I had my little exemption. And, you know, people were walking in, grabbing food and just walking straight out again. Like, no compunction whatsoever. So we, we shut down half of our stores, but we continued to pay them a minimum through that period yep. so that they could at least pay. Well, the staff, of course, you know, we had a lot of the... A lot of our staff don't even get me started on what we did with the poor staff in Melbourne. Um, and um, not when I say we, I say Australia. I don't mean our franchisees. But um, so we did that um, and then we helped them work out how to get the, the government money. We, we put a whole team on that. We had that 7-Eleven had a team 24-7 for nearly two years that just did COVID. They knew everything that was going on, when it was happening, how it was happening, what stores needed help, where we needed to put people in, and that's why the stores have survived. And I still think that's one of the strengths of franchising. There are very few franchises that you know of that certainly still did it tough through COVID but kept their franchisees going. You know, you look at the likes of, you know, Listen to Your Body, Ben's store, a gym of all places, and not only did he survive, but he's absolutely thriving at the moment. Mm. So. I think your franchising did very well. Mm. Probably one of the things, just roll back a little bit for you, is you're at high touch, but then in pharmacy, low touch. Oh, yeah. So dealing with (laughs) franchise systems where there's people, professional people that are, I know you talked about the education of your franchisees in 7-Eleven, but the pharmacist and there's a lot of Mm -hmm. places like that where the franchisees are highly educated and don't necessarily... 
um, thrive on uh, being told what to do. No, <laughs> no. It, it was funny because I, I went from 7-Eleven first time to Sigma and I remember telling someone I was going across there and she said, oh, it's going to be very different, Tanya. And I come on, how different can it be? Come on. Yeah. Franchising. 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 Yeah, well, I learned pretty quickly. It was very different. Um, I did not want to be known as franchises. So we and – that, and that's fine. They, we, they were partners. Um I remember the first time going into a store and asking if I could see their their numbers, and I swear to God, you would have thought I was asking for their firstborn. It like the look of horror on their faces was like, "What do you mean? What do you want that for?" I said, "Well, how can we help you grow your business if we don't actually know what your numbers are?" Um, and yeah, that took that was it took a lot longer than I'd ultimately thought it would. Um, and we had a franchise agreement that was still was 20 years old that had mm. not been updated in 20 years. So a lot of my time, it's, and I was there for seven years, I think, in the end, um, the last three of those was really updating franchise agreements, point of sale systems, really getting them to understand that business had changed. Um, you know, the wholesaling was one thing. You know, Sigma was in bed with the devil because we were also ho- uh, wholesaling to Chemist Warehouse. So a lot of them were very set in their ways of doing business um, and really needed to bring along. So, you know, we introduced a new, um, or we, um, my boss, BT, um, and I was part of that, introduced a new, uh, what would be a franchise advisory committee in any other term, and really started to bring the franchisees back on board. And you know, going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning around how do you circumvent change and how do you get it to happen, you've got to get the franchisees involved. Got to get the peers. You've got to get the peers involved. And mm. that's really what they did very well there, created a whole new group um, and really got them. So the franchise committee went from being a token tick and flick, this is what we want to do, yep, let's go, to a lot more agenda set, a lot more focused on, a lot more heated discussion in a respectful way um, as opposed to, well, this is what we're just doing and you're just here to rubber stamp it. And that, that took that was that was confrontational mm. for a couple of the head office people more than the franchisees, if the truth be known. It's but a it made a difference. Change. That's, was a, a, big that's change. a generational thing almost. It is, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's it's still a work in progress, but um, you if you if you can get that right in any mm. brand, no matter what size you are, well, when you've sort of got to hit a critical point to have a FCA, I get that. But if you're not setting it up for it, for it to be a two-way conversation, then you're going to have to go through that pain at some point because people are just going to go, well, why am I here? Mm. You know, you're just telling me something and I'm not going to be the one that just rubber stamps something that I don't even agree with or don't even think is right. So, yeah. So now in your role as CEO of BDC Developments, mm-hmm. you've, you're seeing businesses that are thinking of franchising and yep. then emerging franchisors that are mm-hmm. growing and, and you yep. get to... To some of those lessons that you've learned, <laughs> yeah, some of true. the big and small, yeah. you know, what are the, some of the things that you're telling those emerging franchisors that, that you know that you've learned from those other big yeah. systems? So with the emerging franchisors, it's again really involving your franchisees or listening to them, but ultimately still being the one responsible for it because I think that's that's your fine line. You can you have to involve. But we're not really a democracy in franchising, whether you know we like it or not. Like there's somebody ultimately has to make a decision for the betterment of the whole brand, as opposed to the loudest voice in the room. So you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to have your strategy in place, and you've got to be looking at it all the time. If that's one thing COVID's taught us, you, a five-year plan just doesn't cut it anymore. You're lucky to get a five-minute plan going some days because things change all the time. But you've got to have something that you've got to know where you want to go, and you've got to put a, plan, a step in place for it 
to be there. And it, whether it be simply making sure your franchisees that you've got are profitable or it's picking your right franchisee or understanding that you picked the wrong one and it's time to move them out, um, all of those kind of things is probably the critical piece. And then it's about how do I grow because one of the biggest challenges and one of the things we find is people get to that five to ten mark and then just kind of tread water for a while. And you've really got to have a plan to how do I get to the 15, 20? Is it a multi-unit um, focus? Is that the best way for your brand to go? Or is it got to actually get back out there and market and what makes my brand successful, what's working, what's not? And if it's not working, why not? And fix it. Don't just keep thinking that the same price is going to work all the time. And to some of the brands that we're talking to at the moment have got successful businesses that haven't franchised, mm -hmm. what do you think they, the thought process is should, they should go through to decide whether to franchise or not franchise? Like, is their business the, yeah, right, the right type business. of business to franchise? Well, I think it, it, it's interesting because the number of that we've spoken to, particularly in the last sort of, you know, three or four months have been, you know, music to my ears, it's been very much, you know, we, we need to make sure our franchisees are profitable and all of that stuff, which is great because they have to be. What they're not focusing on, though, is are they going to be profitable? Because it's, they might be absolutely profitable with the one or two businesses that they've got, but by the time they add a head office layer to it and uh, all the other things mm. with it, support. if the support and piece, which a lot of them don't think about, oh, I can just do that, but mm -hmm. you're in Melbourne, do you really want to go to Brisbane to support somebody? Or do you, and, oh, and we want to be national, but they, they need to refocus with it. But a lot of them forget about the fact that they, or they too have to be profitable because at the end of the day, if they're not profitable, then they're not going to have a franchise anyway. And that can often be a bit of a light bulb moment for people and again it's it's about and again you know managing expectations not only of them when we're talking to them but also of themselves because you know if they've got a great brand in a, a particular area but I want to be as I said you know use the extreme I want to be in WA but I'm based in Victoria fantastic but how you know what are the costs involved how are the people are all of those things a lot of that they don't actually think about but you know, we talk about financial modelling, we talk about the operational piece is really the critical piece. And again, it's not about the set dollars and cents, it's about the people. How involved do they want to be? Because, you know, some of them go, well, I actually don't want to be involved. And that's fine, but they've got to set that up from day one. Or if they do want to be involved, they have to understand what that means Ooh, and a get a sense of people are coming because of you. So if you're the, the, the headline, the headline, then you've you're got to be that person. And it's there's lots of different things to think about. And it's, you know, they've got to test the model. Well, certainly, I know you've had a franchise, a potential franchise in the last six months that, well, we said you're not the right people to mm -hmm. be a franchisor, so yeah. Yeah. we won't be doing anything. No, exactly. And that's, yeah. it's like what you said before, you can't, you can't take everyone and not everyone's a franchisor, not everyone's a franchisee. No, that's right. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's, as I said, I'm... I'm you know, I've always been passionate about franchising. I've, I've, I think I've never worked in two other brands that businesses that weren't franchising. I keep coming back to it, and I think it's just a fantastic way for people to get in, uh, into business for themselves. Um, franchisors have a great opportunity to grow their brands, but it's just got to be the right fit, and mm. you've got to be honest about it. Mm. It's not about oh, I'd love to do it because you know, again, I'd love to own a coffee shop, but I don't drink coffee, mm. or I'd love to own a gym, but I don't. It's like You've got to find something you're passionate about first, yeah, and then you know I'm make it happen. Very sure I'll never buy a gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and probably. A, yeah. Another thing um, 
is you've been involved in franchising a long time, but you've mm-hmm. also contributed a lot for the to the sector and being part of the FCA and mm-hmm. almost yep. 15 years on state chapter committees and yep. now on the national board for a mm-hmm. number of years as well. And yep. So how do you think the franchise sector's managed the COVID period and then out of COVID as, a, as an industry rather than necessarily a particular business? Yeah. Oh, look, I think as an industry, we did pretty well. Um, I think... We worked very quickly with it. Our communication out was really succinct and on point. Um, and I think we we didn't sugarcoat anything. When it was tough, it was tough. Um, and we worked with franchisors. We spent a lot of time with, working with some franchisors that just didn't know where to turn. So I know that the team at, at the FCA really um, spent time with them, putting them in the right direction, getting them into contacts with the right you know, state because, you know, in God love Australia, but we have loved to have our state-based differences. So all of those challenges that that really came through. But I think as a um, as an industry, um, you know, we obviously had went through the inquiry when nobody likes to be slapped around like we were. But I think we've been able to show very clearly that franchising was very strong through COVID. Franchisors were supporting. Uh, franchisees actually appreciated that. We've had lots of anecdotal and, and things come back to say that um, how appreciative that they were of that and friends that, you know, they had friends who had their own businesses that are no longer there because they didn't have the hand holding. Um, the biggest challenge is you can't rest on your laurels. Like the reality is we work with people and some people are going to do the right thing and some people aren't. So it's very much now with us around making sure that we got all the processes in place, that people have got the right things, that we, you know, it's growing as an industry. You know, we know there's a thousand plus franchises out there. How do we work better with them? That's really one of the, the key focuses of, of the FCA and in some ways moving forward, we've got to, you know, represent everybody. But overall, mm. I think we did a pretty good job. And I think a lot of businesses survived because they were in franchising as opposed to not. Mm. What about looking forward for franchisors? What sort of tips that you've, you know, got um, from all of these different roles that you've had? Yeah, okay. Uh, look, I, I would think that if you haven't already, now's a really good time to just take a step back and just take a look at what's next. Um, you know, what, what did you do in the last two years that isn't going to work in the next two? Um, and, because, and we're all tired still. It's really interesting when you talk to a lot of people. Like everyone thought last year people were tired. They're they're still tired, but you've really got to take the talk to your franchisees, um, understand what they went through and where they're at. Um, but really check that your model's right for today, um, because things will have changed and they may have just changed around you. And because you were so busy just putting one step in front of the other, you may not have noticed it. But don't be nitwits. Don't be nitwits. <laughs> yes, exactly. Don't don't be nitwits. Actually, you know, check what's going on and, and tweak. Because it's not going to be, says me, I doubt it will be a radical change, but it's the small changes adding up that ultimately create that one tipping point that you go, you know what, I'm not relevant anymore. So, you know, and again, take take a really good look. Go back as if you were selling your first franchise. And I know that sounds really simplistic, but why would somebody buy your brand today? What, what's what's in it for them, what's in it for you. And if there's not anything there, which I highly doubt, but if there's stuff that you sort of go, well, oh, actually, change it. You know, don't... One of the things Angus <laughs> said at 7-Eleven was that, you know, what you walk past is what is what people accept. Yeah. So if there's something in there that you're not necessarily thinking that, well, maybe we should change it, take the time, but involve your franchisees. If you're already a current franchisor... Just get your franchisees involved because that's all they want, you know. And again, you still ultimately have to make the call, but get your franchisees involved. But it's very true because he, 
in the last you know three years, two years including COVID, obviously, people have moved, customers have changed, mm-hmm. buying habits have changed. Yep. Um, you know that that there is massive change, and that's hasn't really come through yet with with data and no, you know that that's right. that is starting to come through, but it certainly it's a it is a time to reflect and go right. Yep. What has moved mm-hmm. and get it right. So get I agree right. that's hundred percent. Thank you very much for being part of Tell Us Your Effing Story. Um, <laughs> Good great fucking story, Daniel. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Good on you. <laughs>